This morning we continue our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. Today we are in chapter 15, and the focus of the message this morning will be verses 12 through 19. That's found on page 961 in the Bibles that are provided for you there in in the rows, if you do not have your own copy of the Bible with you this morning. If you are visiting with us this morning, we are so glad to have you. Um, Just so you know, our practice here at New Hope is to work through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and so we have been in 1 Corinthians for some time now. And I trust that as we work through these verses that you will pick up some of the context as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins." Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to strengthen your people this day. Lord, I pray that You would use your word to save anyone here who is yet to respond in faith to your gospel. Pray that your spirit would move mightily among us for the glory of your name and the good of your church. Help me, Lord, to speak clearly and your people to listen well. that we would leave this place seeing you more clearly. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now for roughly 21 years of my life, my family and I, year after year, would visit the same place for family vacation, Long Beach, North Carolina. Most of you probably never heard of that. If you hear Long Beach, you, you, you think of some place out in California. But Long Beach was one of the best kept secrets in North Carolina. And, and from as early as I can remember all the way up through when I was in college, year after year, our family would make the trip there. I can close my, my, my eyes and in my mind I, I can picture from, from the early years driving to the beach. And when I, we arrived at Long Beach, Long Beach was, was something special. Long Beach was, was long, about 21 miles long and about three miles wide. It was actually an island. 
and rather than the beach running north to south, it actually was well, well, it was on the southern end of the state and ran more east to west. And so you, you never actually saw the, the, the sun rising in the east over the ocean. It was actually coming up over land. But, but this positioning of the beach actually made it more susceptible to, to, to storms and hurricanes that would, would come up over the years. It would affect Long Beach differently than, than, than the other islands. In fact, I remember as a child when we would go to the beach, when we would get on the main strip there and, and you would have the ocean side houses on the left side and then the, the, the first row of houses off the beach on the right side going down, it would seem year after year there were fewer houses on the ocean side. And this is because unlike the, most of the northern beaches where if you are, are, are wealthy enough to, to, to rent a house on the beach, you, you still have to walk 100 yards to, to, to get to the sand, right? You're, you're on a boardwalk or something else. Well, the, the houses there are literally on the beach. And so with each passing storm or each time the, the, the tide would rise higher than it needed to, more and more of Long Beach would disappear. In fact, you, you could drive down to what was called the point. And you got to a point, pardon the pun, where, where the road was no more. It just stopped. At some point it had washed away. Now, I, I haven't been to, to Long Beach in, in, in 20 years, but I imagine that but if I was to go there now, there would be very few houses that are oceanfront. In fact, I, I remember sitting there as, as a teenager one day. That it was a sunny day, but for some reason the, the tide was rising higher than normal. And, and if wave after wave got closer and closer to, to, to the steps for the, for the back deck of the house that we were on, till, till eventually the water was coming up over it. And, and I sat there and watched as, as, as the tide actually began to rip these stairs apart and take them off to sea. It's a very powerful reminder of what creation can do. Nature wins when it comes to building in places like that. And as I think about Long Beach and the good memories there, I cannot help but think about how the erosion and the effects that nature has had on it truly reflects what often takes place in Christianity when the church loses its focus on the gospel. When the church compromises a, a position or two or adopts the, the, the culture's view on certain things in relation to the gospel. It, it's not always a, a, a clear break of the waves coming in and, and ripping parts of, uh, of, of sound doctrine away. It's usually an eroding effect, effect which takes place. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul deals with a problem in Corinth that threatened to have that effect on the church, this erosion of, of what sound doctrine truly was, and, and would ultimately begin to call into question the humanity of Jesus Christ. This morning, as we consider the importance of 
the resurrection of Jesus and of believers, we're, we're going to tackle these verses under three headings, or three points that, that tell us why the resurrection is essential. First of all, we're going to see that the resurrection validates Scripture. Secondly, we're going we're to see that the resurrection is the source of our security. It secures our salvation. And finally, we're going to see that the resurrection anchors our hope. And brothers and sisters, I want to, 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 to encourage you this morning. This passage, when, when you think about it, Paul takes a negative approach to make his point, but when you think about it from the positive perspective, this is one of the most encouraging passages in Scripture concerning our faith. So if you're struggling this morning, listen up. If you find yourself a bit apathetic in your faith this morning, listen up. If you have questions about why all of this even matters, listen up. Because this word is for you. Verses 12 through 15, we see that the resurrection validates Scripture. Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Now in verse 12, we find Paul addressing yet another problem with the church in Corinth. In fact, we, we see another way in which the religious and philosophical practices of the culture were actually shaping the doctrine of the church and their lives more than, than the teaching that they had received from Paul and, and the other teachers that God had provided for them. Some in the church had adopted the position that there would be no physical resurrection of the bodies of Christians who had died. Their, their, their spirits would, would, would be with God, but their bodies would, would never be raised again. Now, last week, we, we looked at, at verses 1 through 11, where Paul established the essentials of the gospel that he said that the Corinthians believed and in that was the resurrection of Christ. So we, we, we know they at least paid lip service to the gospel while ignoring this implication of the gospel or even the, the, the teaching surrounding the gospel concerning our body's future at the return of Christ. You, you see, the problem here is that the Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians, had adopted the mindset or the view that, that's known as dualism. It was the, the common view in the Greek culture. And what dualism is, basically it says that, that, that everything that is physical, our, our bodies and, and the world around us, those things are bad, they're evil, but those things that are, are spirit are good. And so this dualistic idea for, for them meant that the idea that our bad bodies could ever be resurrected again, it, it was unfathomable for, for the church, to, to, or for those who have this view, to, to, to believe that. 
from, from the context, it, it seems that the Corinthians believed that Jesus rose from the dead, but they could not believe that Christians would be raised at the return of Christ. Now at this point, you might be thinking, what's the big deal? They, they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Isn't that enough? Well, actually, that's a huge problem. It's a, it's a huge problem because it reveals that their view of Jesus was faulty. And Paul reveals this further as, as he unfolds his argument in, in verses 12 through 19. Look at verses 12 and 13. Paul can, writes, Now if Christ has proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You've been taught that Jesus, who was truly man, was raised from the dead, so, so how can you say that people will not be resurrected? That's, that's his argument here. If people are not resurrected, then, then Jesus has not been raised either. Again, this dualism. Well, what eventually, or even at this point, was calling into question the humanity of Jesus. And that's a big deal. Time and again, throughout the Gospels and the New Testament, you see Jesus referred to over and over and over again as a man. Those influenced by dualism in the, in the church at some point would begin to depart from this view of Jesus being man. Surely, if all physical matter is bad, then Jesus couldn't have been truly a man. That's, that, that's the reasoning here. In fact, that would actually later become a, a heresy that, that, that was a big deal in the church. There were those that denied the fact that Jesus actually became man. He appeared to be a man. He, he had the appearance of man, but because the physical is bad, there's no way he could have been. And brothers and sisters, this is how the devil works. Sometimes it's the, the subtle attacks that weaken the foundation more than full frontal assault. And so Paul recognized that what was going on in Corinth was a poison that threatened to kill the church. Paul recognized the, the danger of allowing the, a, a faulty view of the resurrection of the dead to go unchecked. Today, they would deny the bodily resurrection of believers, but tomorrow, they would deny more and more of the gospel that was brought into question. So Paul links the resurrection of believers with the resurrection of Jesus so closely that to deny one meant to deny the other which would lead to a host of other problems that, that when you follow them to their logical conclusion. The, the first problem is found in verse 14. Paul writes, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Both the gospel that had been proclaimed and, and the faith that was exercised in response to the gospel would have been in vain. The, the Greek word translated vain means empty or foolish untrue. Even for us, when we say something is done in vain, we, we mean that it's pointless because the desired result is never going to happen. I can go to the gym 
work out and, and I can try all day to, to, to dunk a basketball, but my efforts would be in vain because that ship sailed many years ago. It's in vain. No amount of desire, no amount of hard work is going to make it happen unless someone lowers the rim a foot or two or three. And Paul's point is simple. If, if Jesus has not been raised, then, then everything that he taught and, and everything that the Corinthians had believed was pointless, was worthless even. It had all been a waste of time. And not only that, Paul continues, if, if Jesus hasn't been raised, then, then he and the other apostles are liars. Verse 15, he says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Now, the, the, the word that's translated misrepresenting is pseudo-martyrs. It literally means a false witness. If Paul and the apostles are bearing false witness about the resurrection, what else might they be lying about, right? Literally, nothing that they said or taught could have been trusted if the resurrection was not true. That's Paul's point here. Can you see how important that, how important this is? For the health of the church? Paul lays the credibility of himself and the other apostles and teachers on the line. In doing so, he also lays the credibility of the Bible on the line. Well, what do you mean? Well, even Jesus told his disciples that he would rise from the dead. So if he didn't rise, then Jesus is a liar. In the Old Testament, God promised a Messiah who would bear the sins of the people and bring redemption, redemption through defeating sin. If Jesus didn't rise, we can't trust the Old Testament either. So Paul is not playing around. This, this idea of the, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers is so central to the gospel that to divorce them in any way calls into question everything else. The resurrection fulfills God's prophecies and Jesus' promises. The resurrection of Jesus validates Scripture because it is the fulfillment of Scripture. In denying the resurrection of the dead, some in Corinth were on the road to denying the humanity of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the trustworthiness of God's word. Can, can you see why Paul had to go there? Now, brothers and sisters, before we move on, I, I, I would be pastorally negligent if I did not warn you that Satan still uses this strategy today to call into question the trustworthiness of God's word and the purpose of Jesus' death and resurrection. There are teachers out there today who deny the Trinity. There are teachers out there today who deny the atoning work of Jesus' death on the cross, that he was punished for us. He died because of our sin. There are teachers out there who pervert the purpose of the gospel. 
teaching that it is a primarily a, a means of temporary gratification and gain rather than being the, the, the sole purpose or the primary purpose to reconcile us to God. That is blasphemous. This is not a, a, an issue of, uh, of charismatic versus cessationist, which we saw as we dealt with chapters 12 through 14, although there are segments within both groups who, who seem to be more easily influenced by certain types of false teaching. No, brothers and sisters, this is a gospel issue. And as followers of Christ, we must be scripturally informed and we must be on guard. There are plenty of skilled communicators out there teaching many things. But the ability to speak well does not validate the message itself. Faithfulness to scripture must be the basis of how we evaluate what we hear. Brothers and sisters, with the, with the promise, with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can have full assurance that everything that you read in this word is true. You need not doubt the validity of Scripture. The resurrection of Jesus validates it for us. The resurrection of Jesus also secures our salvation. Verses 16 through 18. Paul continues, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and, you're, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. In verses 16 through 18, Paul personalizes even more the consequences for the Corinthians if indeed Jesus was not raised from the dead. In verse 14, he says their faith was in vain. It's empty and foolish. And here in verse 17, we, we, we see that their faith would also be futile or worthless because they would still be guilty of their sin. To believe in a crucified but not a risen Savior is foolishness because without the resurrection, there is no promise of salvation. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 tells us that Jesus was delivered up to the cross for our transgressions, our legal guilt before God, and he was raised from the dead for our justification. Justification means that we've been declared righteous by God. And without that declaration of righteousness by God, we have no assurance that Jesus' sacrifice accomplished anything at all. Think about it. Jesus was not the first or the last person to be crucified by the Romans. There were multitudes. He wasn't even the only person who claimed to be the Messiah sent by God. He was, however, the only one who lived a sinless life and rose from the dead following his crucifixion. This tells us something about him, and it should also give us a great sense of assurance concerning our salvation. Listen, I, I want to share something with you that I've said many times before, but, but I think because we are human and we are forgetters by nature that, that we could hear this every Sunday from now until Jesus returns. Saving faith is not centered on our ability to exercise faith. 
Genuine saving faith is centered on Christ and what he has done for us. Does that make sense? Too often when, when you hear people talk about having faith and, and all these other things, faith is something every person, even, even unbelievers, exercise different types of faith. Everybody exercises some type of faith. But what sets saving faith apart it is not that we can trust, but that we are trusting the one who did everything, everything, everything that could be and needed to be done in order to reconcile us to God. So when you doubt, and we all doubt, the question isn't, how can I have more faith, per se, but why am I not looking more closely at the one who died to save me? I am convinced that as a church, if this became our orientation as we work through life, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, rather than navel-gazing and, and, and fixating on where we think we lack, then, then our joy would increase and we would battle those doubts differently. We all struggle there. I'm throwing no stones the, the problem isn't that we wrestle with doubt. But the problem is we don't look to the one who erases that doubt. Whether we have a lot of faith or a little faith is not primarily the issue. The issue is in whom we place our faith. If your faith is in your ability to believe and even explain the gospel, then, then you miss the point. If your faith is in your ability to, to believe and somehow get God to give you what you want, then you've definitely missed the point. But, but if your faith is in the one who lived a perfect life, which you could never live, yet gave his life, bearing God's wrath for your sins, and rose from the dead as proof that all who trust in him are, are made righteous by God, then that, brothers and sisters, is a properly placed faith. And the resurrection of Jesus is key to all of it. If Jesus has not been raised, argues Paul, then there is no declaration of righteousness, no security, because the death of Jesus was in vain. Not only that, in verse 18, Paul points out that Christians who had already died were perishing, they were in hell, bearing the wrath of God. If Jesus had not been raised... But, but the good news, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead, which assures us that we are secure in him. In his death on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sins. God's judgment, which we deserved, it was poured out on Jesus so that we could be forgiven and redeemed. And the resurrection is, is the proof that God accepted that sacrifice. What greater assurance can there be? Feelings of acceptance and, and assurance come and go in the life of a Christian because we struggle and our obedience on our best days is imperfect. In the resurrection of Jesus, we have an objective reality that continually reminds us that the price 
has been paid, that we have been reconciled to God, and we have been set free to live for His glory. Jesus did all that needed to be done. We simply respond to it in faith. Jesus' resurrection secures our salvation, and it also secures our own future bodily resurrection into glory. This is security, brothers and sisters, and it's something that we need to celebrate and rest in each and every day. It comforts us in our failings. It motivates us to greater faithfulness. It enables us to endure hardships and trials, and it anchors our hope in this life and into eternity. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, as someone who grew up in one of the mainline Christian, I use air quotes, denominations that that has now fully embraced theological liberalism, it is heartbreaking to see the damage that is done and the deception that continues to be promoted as these churches have moved further and further from sound biblical teaching in minimizing the seriousness of sin and its offense to a holy God these churches have reduced Jesus to simply being a moral teacher an example for us to follow rather than a savior and lord who is to be worshipped and revered this has led some of those denominations to a wholesale rejection of some of the essential tenets of the Christian faith and has resulted in these churches not only ignoring biblical truth, but also embracing and promoting the very sins which Jesus died to set us free from. But it's not just within the the mainline denominations that this is taking place. Even among true evangelical churches, there has been a shift away from sound biblical teaching to a, a preoccupation with the cause of the day. Now, don't get me wrong, as as Christians, we can and we should and we must engage our culture and seek to bring about a a biblical perspective to the world. But what we cannot do, brothers and sisters, is is to, to sacrifice the truth in order to embrace worldly philosophies and cultural trends. A sound understanding of the gospel gives us a framework to approach the the hot-button issues of our day like racism, homosexuality, gender, and any of the the other topics that are so volatile these days. And it enables us to do so with boldness, with grace, and with a sincere desire to see others respond in faith to the gospel. The, the, the danger that, that we must guard against is the tendency to swing between one of two extremes. The, the first is to view our salvation as something that only pertains to eternal matters, what happens after we die, or, or the opposite, which is what has taken place in the mainline denominations, which, which has become so preoccupied with this life that we ignore the eternal realities of the faith. A Christianity without the resurrection of Jesus would would mean that there is no promise of eternal life because our sins remain unforgiven. To to live for Jesus now but have no hope for eternity would be foolish because let's face it, in the short term, sin is a whole lot more fun than righteousness. It's true. 
If Christianity is for this life only and there is no hope for eternity for us, why bother? Paul goes on to make the same argument. Let's, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In verse 19, Paul says that without the resurrection of Jesus, Christians would be the most pitiable people in the world. And that Greek word translated pitied also translates to pathetic. Our our salvation begins in this life, but it is fulfilled in eternity. And, And while the world may view us as pathetic, we understand that because Jesus rose from the dead, we live here with the expectation of much greater things to come. Those who understand the gospel understand that their best life could never happen now, but awaits us in eternity. And and this too enables us to enjoy God's good gifts in this life and to endure the sufferings in a fallen world with peace because we have the greatest reward, which is Jesus who has been set before us. Resurrection is the anchor to that hope that our salvation is is for now and forever. Beloved, as I close this morning, I, I have but one application for you that has many implications. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19, Paul argues from a hypothetical negative perspective if Christ has not been raised. And he shares the terrifying and depressing implications of a resurrectionless Christianity. Next week we'll see in verse 20 that Paul shifts gears. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been raised. And as a result, everything changes for those of us who are in Christ. The, the danger that we face as a church is to affirm the resurrection while living functionally, functionally as if Jesus is still in the grave. Jesus is alive. You can and you should trust God's word. Jesus is alive. Your salvation is secure because of his faithfulness. Jesus is alive. You have hope now and eternally as you await your eternal reward of seeing him face to face. Brothers and sisters, the application this morning is simple. Take time to reflect on these three realities and then reevaluate the way you live. Reevaluate the way you think about your faith. Ask yourself, has my faith been eroding much like the sand at Long Beach? Or am I on the firm foundation that is Christ? We are secure in Christ. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Build up your people. Strengthen your church. Increase our joy and our faith in you. Help us to see you as you truly are. That we would be faithful in our walk with you, I ask in Christ's name. Amen.